Well, if you uh, keep your Bibles open to Luke uh, chapter 22, uh, this is the text that Amelia just read that we're going to be looking at this morning. Luke 22, verses 39 to 46. We're continuing on our little mini series that brings this up to Easter. Last week, we looked at the institution of the Lord's table that Jesus did with his disciples in the upper room that we continue to practice today. Today, we're looking at Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And obviously, this coming Sunday on Easter Sunday, we will be looking at the resurrection of Jesus Christ and trying to understand that um, more deeply and live out of that reality. What's interesting for me about this passage is I hate to admit it, but as a, as a young Christian, even, even after a decade or more following Jesus Christ, I was very confused by the Garden of Gethsemane. In fact, I was dead wrong about the passage. I looked at the passage, and, and let me just kind of walk through it here. But, you know, Jesus, uh, verse 40, he, he, when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. I kind of understood what that might mean. And he, and he withdrew with them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed. He said, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Then, then an angel appears and strengthens him. And then, then verse 44, he was in agony. He prayed more earnestly and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And I used to think about this text only in terms of, was Jesus this upset about the, about the crucifixion that was about to take place? I mean, why is he so upset? Why is his blood coming out of his pores? What is, in other words, when you read the stories of other Christian martyrs, you, you, you sort of say, boy, other Christians went, went to die and, and were much more, uh, you know, kind of had it together as they're getting ready to die. Jesus seems to be falling apart. And if you look at the other gospel accounts of the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is stumbling on the ground. He's sorrowful unto death, the text says. And it's almost as if Jesus isn't going to quite make it to the crucifixion because he's not going to make it out of this garden. And of course, when I worked with youth, when I was a younger person, we would, we would often uh, exemplify the, the, the crucifixion of Jesus and we would you know, get, get a piece of wood out and we would hammer in the nails and try to give an illustration to, to, uh, you know, to high school students, to middle school students. You know, this is what Jesus endured for us. And of course, he did do that. But that's not what this is talking about. Jesus is not stumbling around in the garden. He's not having blood come out of his pores because he's going into shock because he's worried particularly about the crucifixion. Now, I'm sure he's not looking forward to that. That was certainly an awful way to die, to have to hang on a cross and and slowly be asphyxiated because fluid is filling up in your lungs and you no longer have the strength to, to push up on your feet that are impaled on this piece of wood in itself. That's not a great way to die, but that's not what's happening here. And so what I want us to, us to see this morning as we look into this text is I want us to see the two actions that Jesus engages in in the garden. There's two actions that Jesus engaged with. And then I want to give three implications for us in light of Jesus's actions. 
Of course, the first thing we need to come to grips with is what is Jesus doing? We need to see his actions first, and then we'll draw out these three implications that should guide and direct us through this. So here's the first action of Jesus. When Jesus is in that garden, he's not, I'm I'm sure he's not looking forward to the crucifixion, but that's not what's on his mind. The first action of Jesus is that Jesus is going to take the cup of God's wrath instead of you and instead of me. What this text is teaching us is that Jesus is going to take the cup that you should have partaken of, and he's going to drink down the cup of God's wrath and not you. Let's dive back into the text to see about this again. Verse 44 says, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. I've mentioned this already in other texts. It says he's sorrowful unto death. He's asking his friends to pray. And in verse 42, he says, father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. What's going on in the garden is that apparently God, the father is giving Jesus maybe a more complete picture of what he's about to go through on the cross. And, And what God, the father is showing Jesus, it's not the physical ramifications of his martyrdom. It's the spiritual, mental and emotional weight he will bear by drinking this cup. Jesus said, if you really remove this cup from me, nevertheless, not my will, but yours. What is this cup? Well, we know from Jeremiah that the cup would be the cup of God's wrath. What we have to understand about about Jesus and about God is that God is a just judge of the universe. He's consistent. He punishes sin. He punishes wrongdoing. He's not like a human judge that sometimes lets people off the hook and then maybe sometimes doesn't. He consistently opposes all sin. And therefore, because we have fallen into sin and our rebellion against God, God is obligated in his own character to deal with that. And so the reality is what is happening here in the garden is that there's sort of a choice before Jesus. If Jesus is to participate fully in his father's plan to redeem the world from its sin. Somebody has to drink the cup of God's wrath. Somebody has to pay for these sins against a holy God. And we either drink that cup or Jesus drinks that cup. And this is why in the Garden of Gethsemane, you see Jesus, when you look at all the gospel writers together, Jesus is staggering under the weight of that prospect. This is why he is sweating drops of blood. When you sweat, you know, you could actually sweat drops of blood, okay? Um, You know, maybe uh, Carrie Payne will sweat drops of blood doing her dissertation as possible if you're under enough stress. If you're under enough stress, blood will come out of your pores, 
What's happening to Jesus, he's, he is contemplating the fact that he, a perfect human being, he also fully God, who's lived with his father from all eternity past in perfect communion with his father, he now is going to drink the cup that we should have partaken of. He's going to drink down God's wrath instead of us. And that is pushing him to the brink of death almost. He's sweating drops of blood. He's staggering. He's sorrowful unto unto death, another writer says. When Jesus contemplates the the awesome sacrifice that he must make, that he who knew no sin, he who has always been in fellowship with his Father God, with Father God, a human being who never experienced sin, he is going to have to face that and drink down this cup of God's opposition to sin when he's never known sin, he's never experienced sin. In it, from all eternity, he's been in perfect harmony with God the Father, and all of that is going to change when he drinks that cup instead of you and instead of me. Now, we, we sometimes get this idea a little bit. I mean, most of us have a real strong sense of justice when injustice is done to us, do we not? How, I mean, you know, I was a kid. Sometimes my parents disciplined me for things that my sister had done. And I wanted to call a war crimes tribunal when that happened. I wanted judges, I wanted whatever, child services, come in and correct this injustice. I've been falsely accused. Now, I wasn't as concerned when my sister got accused for what I did. (laughs) Some of you, if you have gossip about you that's untrue, you, you can hardly live with it. You can't deal with the justice of it. Some of you even, and I've watched... Well, I've watched a few sporting events with some of you. You can't handle it when your team gets an unjust call by a referee. I've heard some of you raise your voices. Of course, I've never done that. But um, no, I have. Me too. We have this strong sense of justice when it involves us. Just think about this. Jesus has never sinned. We have, so we're so uncomfortable with our sin. He's never sinned. He's never known sin. He's always been on fellowship. And now he is going to drink the wrath of God. The cup that you and I should have taken, he's going to drink it himself. And I think we vastly underestimate the amazing sacrifice that Jesus Christ is going to do. And the garden shows us what it took for him to engage with that idea. Can you imagine? I mean, just thinking about this passage all week. I I tried to think about who would I be willing to drink the cup of wrath for? Not many of you. (laughs) I love you deeply, but I don't know if I would. I I think I'd be tempted to say, well, you know, maybe we'll take a little bit of the punishment away, but I, I don't want to drink it all down for you. That's what Jesus did. That's what God did. God himself in the flesh, in Jesus, takes the cup 
of the wrath of God on himself. He will drink it all down. We deserved it. In fact, I think you could say God was not necessarily obligated, per se, to, to, to take the cup of wrath away from us. We deserved it. We should have drunk it. You should have drunk it. I should have drunk it. It, 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 it. We deserve that. We've earned that. And Jesus, who knew no sin, who had never violated his father's command ever, who's been in perfect fellowship with God, is willing to drink down what the cup that you should have partaken of, that I should have partaken of. And it almost kills him before he even gets to the cross. He almost doesn't even have to be crucified. It's that weighty, spiritually, I think emotionally, psychologically, and then it's it's manifesting that trauma through his body as as blood pours out of his pores. Now, I want to draw two implications for us. Number one, is this the picture of Jesus that you have in your mind? This Jesus who will take the cup you should have had and he's going to drink it all the way to the bottom for you and for me. Just think about that. He's going to drink down the punishment that you deserved and I deserved. I mean, look at us. We've got nothing to commend ourselves. We, we can't say to God, well, if you drink this cup, I'm, I'm really going to get my act together. We still don't have our act together. We have a confession of sin every week at the, at the church. We're going to do that in just a minute. Why? Because we're not the people we should be, even after we come to Christ. And yet this same Jesus is going to say, I know you deserve this. I know that even after you trust me, you're still not going to get it all together, but I'm going to drink it all down for you. Do you see that? Do you feel that? Is that the vision of Jesus that's before you? And I guess I ask for those of you who maybe you're here this morning and you've never trusted Jesus Christ. I mean, this text is pretty clear. There's a righteous God, a good God, but he's righteous. He's fair, but he's righteous. He's holy. He, he's, he's, he's just. Somebody's going to have to drink the cup. That's only fair. That's only right. Jesus... He knew in order for God's plan of redemption to be, to, to be enacted, he had to drink the cup. And if you've never put your faith and confidence in Christ alone, I just, I appeal to you based on this text. There's a righteous judge of the universe who's going to make everything right. And, and, and the cup of God's anger and appropriate opposition to sin will have to be drunk. And it's either you're going to drink it for yourself or you can let Jesus drink it for you in your place and receive that by faith. That's the first implication. The second implication is this. If God's plan of redemption... could only be accomplished through a sinless human being who was fully God and fully man, but he had to suffer 
in order to redeem you. He had to drink down the cup of God's wrath so you and I wouldn't have to drink it down. But if that, if that meant that God himself had to, to die and be sacrificed in our place as our substitute, if God himself had to endure suffering, what does it say about us? Now that we've trusted Christ, he's ascended now. He's, he's poured out his spirit on us and he's told us that we are part of God's plan of redemption and that we're going to be Jesus's hands and feet on the earth today to bring the gospel to the world. How can we somehow not think that since suffering is sort of the basis of God's redemptive plan, that we who have received that great redemption will not have to suffer in this life either? This is the bizarre nature of some Christians. I, 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 I think we've all done that, right? You get a series of trials in a row that are very frustrating, and you're tended to say, what's going on, God? Why can't you fix my world? Why are you letting all these bad things happen to me? And the reality is, when you look at a text like the Garden of Gethsemane, God couldn't even protect himself. He had to die. For you and for me, he drank the cup. And how can we turn around and not think that part of the Christian experience by definition will mean that if we really follow Christ in this broken world, there won't be significant amounts of suffering. It's almost sort of a Western or North American approach. Jesus drank the cup all the way down, not so that you would never suffer. And he drank the cup down so you wouldn't have to drink that cup, yes. But we should not expect that Christ's suffering would alleviate all of our suffering. That's just not the way it is. I think it's easy for us to forget. According to, uh, there's a, a, a kind of a religious rights group, 100,000 Christians lose their life every year for their faith. Now, I suspect that the people who lose their life and the Christians in those churches where there's been loss of life, they get this suffering thing. Oh, they get it a lot better than we do. They get it. Jesus drank down the cup, not so that I would never suffer, but so I would never experience the wrath of God. Yes, but suffering is part of what it means to follow Jesus Christ. And I think Jesus is trying to help his disciples see that. We'll see that more in a minute. So action number one, Jesus took the cup of God's wrath instead of you and me. The implications are, have you embraced Jesus taking the cup for you? Have you by faith said, yes, Jesus, you take the cup so I won't have to? And the second implication, suffering is part of what it means to follow Jesus today. Are you ready for that? Are you prepared for that? Let's look at the second action of Jesus, and that is this. Jesus prepared for suffering through prayer. Let's go back to the text. Verse 39. They've just celebrated the Lord's uh, table, really. Jesus is foretold that you know, Peter's going to deny him, and he comes to the Mount of Olives. His disciples are with him. Uh, you, you get the sense that this was kind of a, a regular place where they would come to pray. It says, and he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. Verse 40, he came to the place. He said to them, pray that you may not enter temptation. Jesus is trying to tell his disciples, listen, there's a trial coming. 
course, Jesus probably knows Judas has already betrayed him. The soldiers are going to arrive. The religious leaders are going to come to take Jesus this very night. Verse 41, he withdrew from them about a stone's throw. He knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. He prays to God. He's involved in prayer with Father God. We know from the other gospel accounts, he prays three times that if the Father could remove this cup, if somehow the plan of redemption could take place without Jesus drinking this cup, could that be? But of course, the answer is, you know, not my will, but yours, because either Jesus drinks the cup or we all had to drink the cup. He says, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. He prays this three times, we're told. But in Luke, he only mentions it once. But in verse 43, he, he, an angel appears to him and ministers to him. In verse 44, and he, he's in being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. This word agony is a very, very powerful word. It means Jesus is, is agonizing. He is distressed. He's greatly distressed. And he's wrestling with his father in prayer. I think in a real sense, you could say that he is asking God the Father, now that he knows he must drink the cup, he's asking God the Father to give him the strength to do what he must do, which is to drink the cup so that we would not have to drink it. For some of you who want to read about this a little bit more, Jonathan Edwards has a sermon on this very text. I thought about just reading it to you. First, I thought about just memorizing it, but it's too long. But um, you might want to read that. Look it up. It's powerful. One of the things that Jonathan Edwards is clear about is that Jesus is telling his disciples to pray, but he's also modeling to his disciples, how do you prepare for suffering? You do it through prayer. He tells his disciples to pray. He himself prays. He models it. Three times he will say, Father, if you can take this cup away, but you know what? Not my will, but yours. He then prays even more intensely, more earnestly. He is so in agony as he prays, he's got great drops of blood falling to the ground. His body is shutting down, so to speak. He's going into the medical condition, which we would call he's going into shock. Blood in great volume is coming out of his pores because of this vision of what he's going to have to face on the cross is like having to drink down the cup of God's wrath. Verse 45, when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. If you look at Jesus' life, it is characterized by, by he would have this huge day. If you look at Mark 1, that'll be a little homework this afternoon. Read Mark 1. It's the busiest recorded day of Jesus. He gets up, he goes to a synagogue, he casts out a demon, he heals Peter's mother-in-law. Uh, all the townspeople bring people to him. And what does he do the next morning before it's even light out? He's praying. He comes back from prayer in Mark 1 and says, guys, we got to get out of here. And the disciples are saying, what? Get out of here. All the crowds are here. We got to go out of here. I got to go preach the gospel somewhere else. He's always getting direction from the Father. He's always wrestling with what to do in prayer. And on the night before he was being betrayed, he models prayer. He encourages disciples to pray. They can't seem to do it. 
But of course, what happens the rest of the night is when Jesus is slapped around by the religious authorities, when he's not treated well by the civil authorities, Jesus hangs tough, he honors God, he goes all the way to the cross to drink the cup of God's wrath down. And what happens to the disciples? Well, it's, it's a mess, right? No time to look at it, but you know, he, you know, uh, you know, one of the disciples cuts the ear off the servant of the high priest. They all flee. Peter denies Jesus three times. They scatter to the four winds. Why? Because they did not prepare for suffering through prayer. They weren't ready. And I think that's the problem with us. If we're honest, how many of us have? <laughs> gone through a, you know, a week, sometimes a couple of weeks, maybe even a month. And our prayer life consists of, we thank God for the food. We pray some half-hearted prayers. We're not agonizing in prayer like Jesus is. We pray these half-hearted prayers, mostly about us, make our life better. And then we get a real big problem. And guess what? We're not ready. We're like the disciples, sleeping, Cutting off people. I hope you don't do that. You know, cutting off the high priest, you know, the servant's ear. You know, we're running, we're fleeing, we're denying, we're all over the place. It's in prayer. In an agony of prayer, on a consistent basis, before the storm hits, that's what Jesus is trying to get him to do. That's crucial to preparing you for suffering. Jesus prepares for suffering for suffering through through prayer, and we by implication, this is the third implication, we need to do the same thing. There's a book, Prayer in the Night. I've, I've only read about half of it, so I can only half recommend it. But the first half is amazing. It's written by Tish Harrison Warren. Um, she wrote the, the liter- uh, Liturgy of the Ordinary a, number, a couple of years ago. I think it won Book of the Year at Christianity Today. It's a great work. But here's what she describes. She and her husband are out at someone's house having dinner and all of a sudden she begins to miscarry their baby and it's a total disaster. Blood everywhere. They rush to the hospital. She's concerned that she might not even live. Clearly the baby is uh, in trouble. And they get to the hospital and... Um, uh, they're attending to her. They're trying to deal with the bleeding. There's a a room filled with the nurses there. Everybody's commenting on this is way too much blood. This shouldn't be happening. They put in a line for her to get a blood transfusion into her. Her husband is clearly alarmed. And this is what she yells out to her husband. I need to pray, I need to pray, complain. I need to pray, complain. And some of you go, complain, what's that? That's the evening prayer. The English Common Book of Prayer is a great book by Thomas Cranmer from several hundred years ago. Christians for many thousands, you know, many hundreds of years have been praying these prayers. There's prayers for the morning. There's prayers for noontime. There's prayers in in, in the evening. And there's prayers in the nighttime and it's at night. She writes, it's not really normal, even for me, to loudly demand liturgical prayers in a crowded hospital room. But that's what I did. In that moment, 
I needed that evening prayer as much as I needed an IV. So her husband gets out his phone, gets to the common book of prayer, gets to the Compline section, the prayer for that evening. And then they start to pray out loud as multiple people are working on her. The prayer starts out, the Lord grant us a peaceful night and a perfect end. It's a nighttime prayer. Then it goes on and it says, keep us as the apple of your eye. Hide us under the shadow of your wing. Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. Defend us, Lord, from the perils and dangers of this night. And then they finish together as husband and wife. The almighty and merciful Lord, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, bless us and keep us. Amen. Well, she lost the baby. She obviously lived. But she said that, that's what sustained her in this suffering. This what sustained her in the crisis. Just to be honest, I, I grew up in a, in a tradition, in an evangelical tradition, where we where we, we tended to say we need to pray spont, spont, you know spontaneously. That's real prayer. <clears throat> and of course, there's nothing wrong with real prayer and spontaneous prayer. We should do that too, of course. But here is uh, this woman praying a prayer that's been prayed by for hundreds of years of Christians throughout the ages. And she didn't really have time to think about what to pray for, but there were these prayers that had already been written and she prayed them and it gave her comfort. Now, again, I believe that prayer moves God, of course, but I think as C.S. Lewis would say, prayer sometimes doesn't change the situation. It changes us because we reorient ourselves to what God is about, what he's doing. You think about Jesus. What is he praying on the cross? He's praying Psalm 22. Why are the Psalms even in the canon? Well, these are prayers. In, these are prayers. These are songs. These are things we should be looking at. These are sometimes the words of a psalmist actually give us the words to pray when we don't have the words to pray. I think the reality for too many of us, if we're honest, because we haven't done the hard work of regular prayer, biblical prayer from the Psalms even. How about the Lord's Prayer? That's one that's good. It is a great prayer. I mean, you, you, would, you, would, you wouldn't do worse if you, you woke up tomorrow morning before you did anything, said, uh, you know, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's a great prayer. You know why that's a great prayer? Because that prayer can recenter you. Life is not about you primarily. It's about him. <laughs> See, we're really good at the other prayers. Lord, Lord, bless my work. Lord, bless my thesis. Lord, save me, you know, from, from, from harm at work. Keep my job secure. We, we were great at praying all that for us. But the Lord's prayer, the prayer that Jesus used to teach his disciples, starts out, our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be your name. It's about, it's about him. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, there's, there's some other requests for us, yes. Give us this day our daily bread, provide spiritual protection, prayer of confession in there. Yeah, all that's good. 
when you see the difference between what Jesus did and what the disciples did under the most stressful situation anyone could ever have, Jesus is prepared. He's prepared for suffering through prayer. And by implication, we need to prepare ourselves through prayer. Because suffering is going to happen. If you're not suffering today, probably by tomorrow afternoon, it's going to happen. (laughs) Or by Thursday or Friday. It just will. And Jesus tells his disciples to pray that you may not enter into temptation. He actually says that twice in this text. And maybe we need to use the Lord's Prayer. Maybe we need to use the Psalm, the Psalter. Some of you, if you want to get real bold, just look up the common book of prayer. That'll give you prayer morning, noon, and night. They're all there for you. You'll be reading Psalms. You'll be praying all kinds of things. It'll be good. So I want to close with a time of confession. Uh, We didn't do that earlier because we want to do it now. The two actions of Jesus, Jesus took the cup of God's wrath instead of you and me. Jesus prepared for suffering through prayer. And there are three implications for us. We need to get our, our minds and hearts around that and trust Jesus for taking the cup instead of us. We need to realize that suffering is a part of what it means to follow Jesus. It's not incompatible with following Jesus because the very act of redeeming us included suffering and God couldn't protect himself from suffering. So why, can you, why do you think that's what God's main job is to protect you from suffering? And then second action of Jesus is he prepared for suffering through prayer, which teaches us how to prepare for the suffering as we are part of the redemptive plan of God. We have to do a better job at getting on our knees and spending more time in prayer. And if you struggle with what to pray for, you've got 150 prayers in in the Psalms. You don't know what to pray for, you've got the Lord's Prayer. You don't know what to pray for, get the, you know, Book of Common Prayer. To give you the words so that you can pray. So let's spend some time in confession. Please bow your heads. Dear Father in heaven, we confess to you, Lord, that many of us probably don't meditate deeply enough on what Jesus did for us on the cross. That you took the cup of God's wrath, that you drank it down. The the cup that we deserved, the cup that we had earned through our rebellion, you drank it all the way down so that we wouldn't have to. And when we see you stumbling around the garden, when we see you uh, sweating, uh, you know, blood is pouring out of the, the, your, your skin because you are in shock thinking about doing this for us, we underestimate that. When we see you sorrowful unto death, when we, we, we see you uh, just overwhelmed emotionally, spiritually, physically even, And we don't fully understand it. We don't understand the severity of our sin. And we don't understand the severity of the sacrifice that you made for us. So Lord, we confess that is the case. We ask you by your spirit to open our eyes to see this and to operate out of this reality. Lord, forgive us for 
charging you with evil when our life doesn't work the way we want it to work. Forgive us for forgetting that you suffered, not so that we would never suffer, but so that we would never experience the wrath of God. But help us to remember that part of following Christ is suffering, Lord. Lord, help us to remember what you you said often. The world will hate you because they hate me. May we not be surprised, undone, thrown. And Lord, in order to help us prepare for that, I pray that you would help us to pray as preparation for suffering. Lord, forgive us for our prayerlessness. Forgive us for the lack of using the word of God that has got 150 prayers and a whole lot of other prayers throughout the Bible. And we we don't pray them. We don't prepare. Forgive us for that lack of preparation. Forgive us for the lack of prayer, Lord. And I thank you, Lord Jesus, that in spite of our wandering and in spite of our failings and in spite of our uh, underestimating what you've done for us and our prayerlessness, I thank you, Lord, that through Jesus Christ, for those of us who trust Jesus Christ, you drank the cup so we will not have to drink the cup of God's wrath. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that in spite of our prayerlessness, you are faithful to your promise. And there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So thank you, Lord, for your grace. And give us strength. Give us perspective. Help us to see you in Jesus' name.